Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. everyone. Welcome back to Leaf by Lantern. We're now in the holiday season and I'm recording this on a very nice dark rainy day, the kind that's perfect for lighting candles and fires and huddling in blankets. Today's episode will be a really fun one. We'll discuss one of the better known fairy tales, the Frog Prince, and how to approach retelling it in the light of scripture as usual. But the discussion will be more creative than scholarly this time. I have a guest, my dad, and we're going to talk about how we would retell the Frog Prince as a science fiction story. This episode came together uh, through just a couple of things. I'm interested in fairy tale retellings that are written in different genres than the typical vaguely medieval, but not specifically medieval pre-technology fantasy landscape. Because fairy tales are just, they're so big, they're so flat in an artistic way. They're colorful, they're archetypal. So you can explore mysteries and images and wonders in some really interesting ways when you're working from a different genre. So historical fiction, dystopias, alternate history, or in this case, sci-fi could be a really neat way of exploring the world of the fairy tale. I also wanted to have my dad in this conversation because he's very wise. He loves the Lord. He loves scripture. He has a medical and scientific background, and he really enjoys science fiction. So here is my dad. So hi, dad. Hi, Alicia. Glad to be with you today. Mm, glad, glad you're here. So I wanted to introduce my dad and this episode. So I'm going to run through a few preliminary questions. So dad, first of all, can you tell us about your favorite science fiction books or authors? Well, early on, I enjoyed much of what Arthur C. Clarke wrote. And we actually had our childhood's end assigned in school. And so I started reading Arthur C. Clarke. Also, when it came out, there was the epic film 2001 about a space voyage out to Jupiter and uh, what they found there that uh, had a lot uh, influenced my choice of science fiction and my interest in it. Yeah, of course. And um, yeah, so Arthur C. Clarke and 2001. Um, you also read the Madeline Lengel books pretty early on as I did too, right? Or, no, it was in college for you. Actually, it was recommended by the elementary school librarian. Oh. And I read it in about fourth grade, I believe, and was just mm. enthralled by it. I think I've read it several times. I like the first book much more even than the two sequels. Mm. Oh, yeah, I love those ones too. And Dad, when did you first read C.S. Lewis's Cosmic Trilogy, his, his Ransom books? I think it was in middle school, which wow. uh, much of it was early. beyond me, but I was looking for the story. So middle school and then into high school. And I was amazed when I revisited it a couple of decades later uh, in uh, just all of the ideas, all the philosophy that C.S. Lewis was sharing in the books at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember because I first encountered them um, as an audiobook, and it was that hideous strength that was the first one I came across. And I listened to only part of it, and I, I came in right when um, you were listening to the part where Jane encounters the character called the fairy, which is a pretty scary scene, but that was the first, but his writing is just so good that it really drew me in. So I think I, I think I finished that book and then I went and restarted the book to, to catch up on the ending. And then I went back and read out of the silent planet and Paralandra. But I, I am kind of glad I waited until years after I'd read the Narnias and kind of after it was, it was during college or maybe it was a, a different, you know, driving someone else to college. But yeah, just, just some of the themes I don't think I would have understood earlier. His work feels so like I had read other science fiction. So his um, his Christian worldview was like deeply comforting in that because there's a lot you can you can get into some pretty scary places in this genre. Anyway, it's there's a lot to explore. There's a lot of wonder. But yeah, there's sci-fi and horror are often put together. Like some, you know, it's a cross genre story will be sci-fi horror. That's a very popular pairing. There's a lot, like a lot of the Netflix sci-fi I look at is are horror stories, which I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sensitive. <laughs> but 
Yes, a lot, a lot of good, uh, but some dark in the genre. And you also like, is it Andrew Weir who wrote The Martian and Project Hail Mary? Uh, yes, uh, Andy Weir, and I, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed his writing. It was, um, I, I guess, like with Arthur C. Clarke, there's a certain amount of scientific knowledge. You know, for Andy Weir, it's more like engineering knowledge, mm-hmm. basic science, and. Um, back to Arthur C. Clarke, I, I remember appreciating how he uh, would use the theory at that time that the planet Jupiter was something that might have become a sun and never quite made it. Oh. And then in the sequel to 2001, uh, called 2010, uh, Jupiter, with the help of the wise and ancient aliens, actually did become a sun. Um, but what happened to Earth? Well, it was far enough away, apparently, that they just had another bright star in the sky. Oh, and, uh, oh that's nice. And then how um, Arthur C. Clarke would, would figure out the Lagrange points. That is, if he had a vessel orbiting, say, the moon Io around Jupiter, he would calculate with what was known about their masses where the most stable orbits would be. And in the book would appear uh, how many thousands of kilometers the, the vessel would be from the surface of the celestial body. So Andy Weir did a lot of the same things. He read the scientific papers, the actual foundational papers for a voyage to Mars and what it would require. And he basically went from that. And uh, though he had some things that he later found out were incorrect, he uh, used that in, in putting the book together. So a good, a good scientific basis I always appreciate in the science fiction. Yeah, that, that ties into my, my next question. So I wanted to know about like specifically your favorite things, like favorite things that happen, favorite plot arcs or character types or settings. So you like it when like you start out with hard science and the story kind of sticks to that, I guess, because it, it, a lot of times, and this happens in action, to like people will follow something realistic to a certain point and then they'll just like abandon reality and even in fantasy people don't like we want that the the trustworthiness of reality realistic opportunities and limitations so you like hard science yes i agree uh, i guess part of it is seeing concepts of my basic science background that i could recognize and seeing the new combinations that are plausible for what could be done so what else do you like, Dad? The sense of wonder, sense of new, unexplored frontiers, uh, new ideas, new ways in which life might appear, and then how the characters would interact in the new environment. That that I like very much. And then one thing I one thing I try to avoid is when I recognize the same old story that could be a western or just a dark type of plot that shows how uh, evil mankind is at the core and how unfaithful. And that's really all you get in the uh, story. There's no, oh, there's no elevated character traits. That kind of story I don't enjoy much at all. I'm, I'm starting to read one, which I won't mention, that I'm suspecting that's all we're going to get. And I, um, I'm not so sure I'm going to enjoy this one. Yeah, I, I share that when, especially the kind of spaceship story, which is really like a voyage into the human heart. But I mean, we we believe and we see that the human heart is evil. So just just a story where there's no intervention, there's no act of grace or self-sacrifice, like everyone's trapped on a spaceship and then terrible things start happening and everyone starts acting self-interestedly. They're not no one is trying to protect anyone else. They're all just fighting. That's very uh, hard for me. Yes, very disappointing. And why am I reading this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I love that sense of wonder too. And because it's sci-fi, because we're we're taught and, and trained in our culture that science is the primary means of knowing the world. It's the primary, like, I think epistemological lens would be the official term. But And I think, you know, we... We believe in God. We believe that revelation from God is is actually the primary means of knowing. Um, but thinking of, of science as, as a way of encountering the world, science fiction feels more realistic 
it's different from fantasy because it it feels closer to reality. And I think I think that's a double edged sword. I think that can be a, a problem as well. But when they do it right, it's so fun. It's so exciting. Like Interstellar did that really, really well. Just that sense of like what you know, what kind of mysteries are waiting out there? What fantastic worlds to explore? And how how are they going to interact with with ordinary humans? And can they save us? Yeah, I share the same thoughts about interstellar relationship between the father and the daughter. I enjoyed very much. I loved the warmth there. I, I will try to dig up the paper it was in. But in grad school, I was reading a paper on film and talking about the idea of transcendence. The, the scholar's argument was that in film, you get either transcendence A or transcendence B. Transcendence A is that sudden moment of the sublime or the sense of like shock and awe. Like you see a new galaxy and it's just startling and amazing. Or And then transcendence B is that same wonder and awe, but on a much smaller scale. It's wonder and awe at human love, like the love between a father and daughter, which is more powerful than millions of miles. Transcendence B in Interstellar was very, very sweet. I loved that too. If I may get back to uh, Andy Weir. So his most recent science fiction work that I know about is about the ship, the Hail Mary, uh, the last chance to save the earth from certain demise. And that had, the author had an obligation to make up a certain peril that is somewhat fantastic, but he also had to use that peril to provide a way for the spaceship to be able to travel as far as it traveled. But it was the relationship with another space traveler who was also alone that made the book, the interactions between them, the respect that built between them, the knowledge of one another's gift, the ability to work together. And then the way the book ended was just uh, was emotionally satisfying friendship, but still it was unexpected. Yeah, I agree. That was that was very sweet, very satisfying. And there's a different kind of wonder in that, like the wonder of, of getting to know another person. Actually, the movie Ad Astra explored that a little bit as well. Uh, um, the wonder of, of the human and of loving another person just as much as being an explorer of, of new worlds. So did Arrival too. We both really liked Arrival. Uh, I- Yes. All right. Well, so with that background, I'm going to read the fairy tale out loud, The Frog Prince. Um, and then we're going to talk through maybe how, how we would approach a science fiction retelling. And so I'm going to read aloud the Project Gutenberg version because that's free. And it's supposed to be taken from a, a book by Walter Crane called The Frog Prince and Other Stories. But I'm pretty sure this is he, he just like took this from the Grimm version, which is just as well because the Grimm's were really good at taking the images of fairy tale and making a very tight, neat, compact, well-structured, poetic framework for it. So I'll read from there. So this is The Frog Prince. In the olden time, when wishing was having, there lived a king whose daughters were all beautiful. But the youngest was so exceedingly beautiful that the son himself, although he saw her very often, was enchanted every time she came out into the sunshine. Near the castle of this king was a large and gloomy forest, and in the midst stood an old lime tree, beneath whose branches splashed a little fountain. So whenever it was very hot, the king's youngest daughter ran off into this wood and sat down by the side of this fountain, and when she felt dull, would often divert herself by throwing a golden ball up in the air and catching it, and this was her favorite amusement. Now one day it happened that this golden ball, when the king's daughter threw it into the air, did not fall down into her hand, but on the grass, and then it rolled past her into the fountain. The king's daughter followed the ball with her eyes, but it disappeared beneath the water, which was so deep that no one could see to the bottom. Then she began to lament and to cry louder and louder. And as she cried, a voice called out, Why weepest thou, O king's daughter? Thy tears would melt even a stone to pity. And she looked around at the spot whence the voice came and saw a frog stretching his thick, ugly head out of the water. Ah, you old water paddler, said she. Was it you that spoke? I am weeping for my golden ball, which has slipped away from me into the water. Be quiet and do not cry, answered the frog. I can give thee good advice. But what wilt thou give me if I fetch thy plaything up again? What will you have, dear frog, said she? My dresses, my pearls and jewels, or the golden crown which I wear? 
The frog answered, dresses or jewels or golden crowns are not for me, but if thou wilt love me and let me be thy companion and playfellow and sit at thy table and eat from thy little golden plate and drink out of thy cup and sleep in thy little bed, if thou wilt promise me all these, then I will dive down and fetch up thy golden ball. Oh, I promise you all, said she, if only you will get me my ball. But she thought to herself, what is this silly frog chattering about? Let him remain in the water with his equals. He cannot mix in society. But the frog, as soon as he had received her promise, drew his head under the water and dived down. Presently, he swam up again with the ball in his mouth and threw it on the grass. The king's daughter was full of joy when she again saw her beautiful plaything, and taking it up, she ran off immediately. Stop, stop, cried the frog. Take me with thee. I cannot run as thou canst. But all his croaking was useless. Although it was loud enough, the king's daughter did not hear it, but hastening home soon forgot the poor frog, who was obliged to leap back into the fountain. The next day, when the king's daughter was sitting at table with her father and all his courtiers, and was eating from her own little golden plate, something was heard coming up the marble stairs, splish splash, splish splash. And when it arrived at the top, it knocked at the door, and a voice said, open the door, thou youngest daughter of the king. So she rose and went to see who it was that called her, but when she opened the door and caught sight of the frog, she shut it again with great vehemence and sat down at the table looking very pale. But the king perceived that her heart was beating violently and asked her whether it were a giant who had come to fetch her away who stood at the door. Oh no, answered she, it is no giant, but an ugly frog. What does the frog want with you? said the king. Oh, dear father, when I was sitting yesterday by the fountain, my golden ball fell into the water, and this frog fetched it up again because I cried so much. But first, I must tell you, he pressed me so much that I promised him he should be my companion. I never thought he should come out of the water, but somehow he has jumped out, and now he wants to come in here. At that moment, there was another knock, and a voice said, King's daughter, youngest, open the door. Hast thou forgotten thy promises made at the fountain so clear neath the lime tree's shade? King's daughter, youngest, open the door. Then the king said, what you have promised, that you must perform. Go and let him in. So the king's daughter went and opened the door, and the frog hopped in after her right up to her chair. And as soon as she was seated, the frog said, take me up. But she hesitated so long that at last the king ordered her to obey. And as soon as the frog sat on the chair, he jumped on the table and said, now push thy plate near me that we may eat together. And she did so, but as everyone saw, very unwillingly. The frog seemed to relish his dinner much, but every bit that the king's daughter ate nearly choked her. Till at last the frog said, I have satisfied my hunger and feel very tired. Wilt thou carry me upstairs now into thy chamber and make thy bed ready that we may sleep together? At this speech, the king's daughter began to cry, for she was afraid of the cold frog and dared not touch him. And besides, he actually wanted to sleep in her beautiful clean bed. But her tears only made the king very angry, and he said, He who helped you in the time of trouble must now not be despised. So she took the frog up with two fingers and put him in the corner of the chamber. But as she lay in her bed, crept up to it, and said, I am so very tired that I shall sleep well. Do take me up, or I will tell thy father. This speech put the king's daughter in a terrible passion, and catching the frog up, she threw him with all her strength against the wall, saying, now will you be quiet, you ugly frog? But as he fell, he was changed from a frog into a handsome prince with beautiful eyes, who after a little while became, with her father's consent, her dear companion and her betrothed. Then he told her how he had been transformed by an evil witch, and that no one but herself could have had the power to take him out of the fountain, and that on the morrow they would go together into his own kingdom. The next morning as the sun rose, a carriage drawn by eight white horses with ostrich feathers on their heads and golden bridles drove up to the door of the palace and behind the carriage stood the trusty Henry, the servant of the young prince. When his master was changed into a frog, trusty Henry had grieved so much that he had bound three iron bands around his heart for fear it should break with grief and sorrow. But now that the carriage was ready to carry the young prince to his own country, the faithful Henry helped in the bride and bridegroom and placed himself in the seat behind, full of joy at his master's release. They had not proceeded far when the prince heard a crack, as if something had broken behind the carriage. So he put his head out of the window and asked Henry what was broken. And Henry answered, It was not the carriage, my master, but a band which I bound round my heart when it was in such grief because you were changed into a frog. 
Twice afterwards on the journey, there was the same noise, and each time the prince thought it was some part of the carriage that had given way, but it was only the breaking of the bands that bound the heart of the trusty Henry, who was thenceforward free and happy. Dad, will you tell me what, what drew you to this fairy tale? What, what you like about it? Maybe any questions that you have? Yes, the main thing was the, the idea that there was something, someone of great personal value and royalty and someone who could do much potentially for her hidden in the body of this ugly frog. And her kindness to the frog ended up being very reluctant, pretty much only because the king told her she had to keep her word. But uh, she was greatly rewarded, even more greatly than she deserved. And one question I have in this version is, what is the function of uh, faithful Henry? Yeah, I was wondering about that too, because um, so in the original Grimm version, the title is actually the Frog King, or like as an alternative title, Faithful Henry. So I, I don't remember him being included in a lot of the children's versions that I read because I, th I think because people are like, well, what's the point of him? I'm wondering now reading it, if he's a foil to the girl, because um, she, she was going to commit one of the worst crimes you can commit in a fairy tale. She was going to break her word, break a bargain. Like that's, that's a huge deal. When you make a bargain in the fairy or fairy tale world, like very, very grave consequences, that and not being grateful. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit now of the people who the Lord Jesus healed who just like walked away from him without saying thank you. <laughs> like mm -hmm, right. he, he healed them and you know, he, he had an invitation to a relationship, like the, like so much better than, than a physical healing or, or physical wine or physical bread or any of the things he did as like a sign. Um, but, but to know him, but lot, lots of people just walked away without saying thank you. So I was wondering if faithful Henry was her foil because as, as a friend, he, he had bound himself in a way that is kind of curiously, like it's like iron bands, a frog shape. I don't see this as a direct tie, but just as the prince was bound in a shape he did not want to be in, Faithful Henry bound his heart um, to keep it from breaking. So yeah, that, that's what I wonder. If he is, he's a sign of, of faithfulness, that's one of the keynotes of the story. Because um, the frog is definitely a Christ figure. I mean, being kind and knocking at the door that's a big deal. Like I stand at the door and knock and being a deliverer and the, the undeserved deliverer and rescuer. He had something more to offer than just getting the toy back. Mm -hmm. the but uh, doing that first was a, was just the introduction. Mm -hmm. I also see this, this father is probably the only fairy tale father I know of. Who's like a good father who doesn't make a huge mistake that, gets his children in trouble, ma makes her keep her promise, which ends up being really good for her in the end. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a reward for uh, keeping her word. And he didn't let her break it, which was certainly protecting her. Yeah, yeah. I wonder even, so it doesn't say so directly, but um, it sounds like the frog had to be broken, like the throwing against the wall, which was a terrible, like that, that was a terrible thing for her to do. But in an act of grace, it turned into exactly the right thing to, to transform him out. I wonder if he was egging her on, that he was being really obnoxious on purpose in order yeah. to get her to, to do that. So it actually worked, worked in his favor. I'm, I'm wondering that now. So where did the kiss come in? Well, because that's, that's the most famous. That's so true. I, I forgot about that. Um, I don't think there is a kiss except after he turns back into a human. So she doesn't have to kiss a frog. Right. She doesn't have to kiss any frogs before she meets her prince. Just has to pick him up, even in some malice mm -hmm. and reluctance. Yeah, two fingers. So, because they're, they're all very relational things that what he wanted her to do. And he was, you know, it's it, it sounds kind of mean when he's like forcing her to do all that, but she promised, like he very clearly said, you know, eat from your plate and be your companion and play fellow and, and be in your bed. And like, she said yes to all of that and then tried to, to break her word. But those are all relational things. So it's like an invitation to relationship. 
and kind of, I guess you could also say, you know, playing with her golden ball in the wood alone, she goes from that to being a queen. Uh, and so it, so it turns out well for her, definitely undeserved. I mean, there's, there's not much admirable um, about, about her. So in a retelling, I, I'd figure out how to tackle that because I, I struggle with main characters who are not likable in some way. Um, like there has to be something oh, yeah. being reformed and growing in maturity. Like that's great, but there has to be something that makes them not completely selfish. Cause it, it's, you know, if you meet a really selfish, terrible person on page one, you kind of know they have to be broken by the end of the story. And I empathize with the main characters so much. I feel like I'm going through that breaking process. Like any, like if they're really proud and they have to be humiliated, I feel like I'm, I'm being humiliated right there with them. So yeah, I'd have to figure out how to do that in a fairy tale retelling in a way that um, kind of was true to the arc of the story, but it was a little less painful. All right, so I wanted to ask, in terms of setting, I want to do some world building here. Do you like, for a sci-fi story, like an oceanscape? So everything's happening at sea. A solar system story where you're going between different planets like Star Wars. A prehistoric or post-historic Earth that has really big predators like dinosaurs or something after dinosaurs. Or a spaceship story where everything pretty much happens on the spaceship. Like, what what do you enjoy reading about the most? What occurs to me first is a travel to other planets. Yeah, I like that one too. And the uh, it would seem to lend itself to an important character who does not appear to be a valuable person to know at first. Someone who seems of little account. Whether it's uh, someone from Earth who doesn't seem to be very gifted in the things that most people admire, or whether it's a story where you bring in an alien who looks somewhat repulsive, like a frog, to a young girl. Uh, those are the kind of directions I would I would go in first. Yeah, I like that a lot, um, especially with different planets, because that, that really allows you to play with, with settings. Yeah, so this character, I like the idea of him, at least... I would say, I think, because if, if, they, if they need to end up married in the end, he needs to be human. But if he seemed like a repulsive, and like for some, you know, something, again, so we, we would need to work in the, like, scientifically speaking, like if, if he had some kind of a disease or anything, but something that made him repulsive, but he had an ability to do something that she could not go somewhere she couldn't. Just like as a frog can go between land and water, he can go in that bottomless well. I, I can't handle anything too gross, but are there diseases or conditions that are temporary that make someone not physically attractive? I'm sure we could find one or undesirable for, for one reason or another. I'm not, I'm not thinking of, a, of the best one right now, but... There are diseases that frogs can carry. Again, I <laughs> I can't handle anything too gross, but yeah, disease or or just or just a disguise. Or there's a type um, of diabetes mellitus called monogenetic uh, disease of the young. There's just like one link in the chain that's missing, and it might look like someone is headed for a tough future uh, with a chronic disease, but. All they need is just that one thing, which is supplied by one medicine, and their life is pretty much like anyone else. That's that's one example. Interesting. So, if he had something like that, I mean, what he would need is the medicine. Yeah. Which I like. I mean, so the first often a fairy tale it first starts out with a lack or an absence or a kidnapping, like some. Some there's there's a world of order and then something goes wrong. So in this one, it's that she loses her golden ball. So on his side, if he if he had this and he was in, and what he needed is the medicine, but he would have the ability to go somewhere she could like he'd have the ability to maybe go into like a water world and get something that she really needed. So I kind of like that. The first you could extend the first part of this fairy tale into a, a whole sequence of its own a quest. And even that's where you can get relational development because they, they'd have to be working together, like maybe over radios, like she wouldn't be there or she could be. Yeah, so I like that, some monogenetic diabetes mellitus or, or something similar. So I was thinking about gold. 
me on a very basic level, why do people make a big deal about gold? Like I know it's beautiful, but bronze is also beautiful. Tin is beautiful. What, what makes gold special? So gold does not oxidize as easily. It does not rust. Whereas tin and bronze or brass that can corrode or tarnish. And um, so gold does not mix easily with other things. Uh, and um, so it's, it preserves longer. Hmm. Okay. It's, it's rare. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So I'm thinking, you know, what if, what if we go straight, the gold ball actually does stand for gold or like a lot of gold that, that she wants, like maybe, you know, maybe her father runs a big mining operation or a big, or a big corporation and they need a lot of gold like right away. And they know about some gold deposits that are on like a, like a water type planet. That's mostly ocean. That's very dangerous to get to. Like Europa, the moon around Jupiter. That it's uh, covered with ice, but there's ocean underneath as well. We... Ooh. Oh, I love it because, um, I mean, if you draw in ice again, because world building informs the story because like setting, setting creates plots and it throws in all these obstacles and, and opportunities, um, kind of gives, gives you a good atmosphere. But if it happened in our solar system, it's easier to travel between planets, but she's on earth. Her father, because I, f- I feel like their relationship with the father is important here. Like she has a good father, but he's, I mean, he could be like a king or like a very important political figure and they need gold. Is it, is it at all feasible that there would be gold on Europa? Well, probably, or, you know, alternatively say it could be one of the very important, but very rare earth metals, manganese mm. and that are used in a lot of the technology now. That's an alternative. And uh, say the amount on Earth, I think, for instance, North Korea has a lot of rare Earth metals. Once it's exhausted and it's greatly needed for, well, so many things, high technology, that kind of thing. And and so they're looking to obtain it on other planets and they know there there's an especially great amount of it thought to be on a, a world like Europa. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really, really good because that creates scarcity and a need. So so what if this girl and her father, they're either, depending on how you want to play, it could be their country or their corporation would would need manganese and maybe they were trading with the North Koreans, but either start to be political issues or the prices just get to be too much. So they get the bright idea of, you know, maybe we could get it from another planet and the key would be that it would need to be obviously at less of a cost than you would have to pay to get it from North Koreans to be to be worth it. Um, and some great urgency, something to really heighten the tension, like they need it for a specific project, or you know, if that project doesn't go through, then there'll be a world war or something like that. Or they are fighting a world war already, and this is this is crucial. So that would make it more of more of an Earth story that's just kind of expanded to the galaxy, like no no aliens yet unless somehow like they were there are other humans in the galaxy people didn't know about and for a complicated reason they disguise themselves as being like a different race just to i don't know maybe to create some some distance so the earth people wouldn't bother them or something but there was there was a meeting there was a connection somehow and they make a deal they make a bargain right yeah i could see that so just very practically speaking, Dad, for space travel. In Andy Weir's book, he was using you know some some invasive species that was feeding on uh, the sun's energy, and that was able to turn into a fuel um, for the ship in Project Hail Mary. What what kinds of things do people talk about when they talk about how to get spaceships to travel really fast? So there definitely whatever the engine is, there has to be a propellant. There has to be something you throw out off the back make the spaceship go forward so there has to be something that is available for for a propellant though you know a type of hydrogen i think it's called tritium it's um hydrogen that has maybe three protons to it there should be just one i've heard that being important for certain types of power and um, there have been books science, uh, science fiction books based on trying to retrieve that say from the moon in order to provide power for, say, 
not like the nuclear power we're talking about, which is fission, you know, splitting things apart, but but for fusion, you know, putting getting energy out of putting two things together, which is the way the sun provides power. Two hydrogens come together and helium as a result, plus energy is released. So a special type of hydrogen that allows that to happen. Mm, okay. Hydrogen, helium. Is that is helium does that relate to the sun at all? Because the name it's just the name I'm thinking of. Right. Yeah. Well the you know, in, in middle school science, physical science, the basic reaction in the sun is a fusion reaction. That is the um, member of the periodic table, hydrogen, uh, will come together. Mm-hmm. Two hydrogens come together and it makes a helium molecule, which um, that's mm-hmm. fusion. And um, you end up having helium as a result on the sun. And it produces a great deal of energy to do that. And that's that's something that uh, currently we keep trying to do, but we can't get more energy out of what is done than we put in. And so it's not a good energy source if you're getting out of it less than you put in. Okay, so I think you're just, just going thematically from the story. This could be a couple centuries out, so they've had time to refine the technology, but using that specially enhanced Hydrogen, because the, just the sun is really, really important in this fairy tale. So I feel like that that kind of hangs together atmospherically. Okay, so I like I like that a lot. So basically, the the setup like this corporation or country that the girl and her father work in or, or run desperately needs. I'll just say manganese. It could be mm-hmm. another similar metal. And either there's a world war going on and they're fighting North Korea, so obviously they can't trade with them, or you know, North Korea has chosen to stay neutral and they're not trading, you know, et cetera, but they desperately need that. So she needs to work with the prince guy who, I kind of like the idea of him being like actually human, but he's, they're pretending to be an alien race, maybe to intimidate the people of earth a little bit so that if they trade with them or work with them, they'll create that distance, that little bit of uncertainty. There's kind of an awe and mystique in trading with, with an alien race so you're not quite sure so that, I think that would be really funny if they were <laughs> they were doing that um, and he has a way of traveling really fast and he can get to Europa and so he so they can make a bargain based on that so he can help her get this strange mouth that's like the getting of the golden ball but he's also sick with something it could be monogenetic diabetes mellitus or something similar but something that could only be found on earth so his people are more advanced in certain ways, but they don't have that, right. whatever it is. Right. So I like that. Um, so the tricky things are it needs to be, there needs to be a really personal element. You know, why, why the girl wants the medal, it's going to make her more sympathetic if there's a very personal reason. Like her, her brother is a prisoner of war in this world war. And so they need to, to get him out or, or something like that um, rather than, certainly more than just like making lots of money probably right and that would mean that if she plans to break the bargain because that is one thing that could just kill the reader's sympathy like if they're working with that kind of betrayal because there's they have a secret urgency of another kind of you know, people would understand enough to be ready to watch her try to do that and not completely hate her and then watch her go through like kind of the, the repentance and forgiveness i think that she she needs to go with this guy and have it be a little bit more of a quest narrative in that part of the story and so that they can get to know each other. Very good. Yeah, some adventures on the way. Oh, maybe some extenuating circumstances like you were you were speaking about earlier that would make it hard for her to keep her agreement. But there's right, maybe something to have to do with the conflict, uh, yeah. international implications and but still, you know, maybe maybe from the father being reminded of the obligation to keep her side of the bargain. Yes. And even it occurred to me, it might raise the stakes for the prince's problem, sickness, illness, disease, limitation, that it be not just him, but all of his people. So he's not just working for himself, but he's working for them. And that work. I also think the faithful Henry aspect of it, like I don't know, to, to develop somebody, like having them have a really good friend, David and Jonathan type friendship would would sharpen his character more. Even 
even if it was faithful Henry who was sick or, or like sick worse than the princes. So, so he's working on behalf of his friend as well. So I like that up to a point, but the, the journey would have to be definitely productive in terms of uh, character development, relational development. And also this is where we could really pull up Brandon Sanderson. Not that I'm that clever, but like bigger things would be going on in the solar system than either of them were aware of. And they, they see this unraveling like this, what they thought was the conflict was only a small part of the conflict. So, you know, the world war on earth was, was triggered by something or is involved in something or, or there's something even bigger than a world war on earth going on that they need, they need to attend to. So mainly in the story, the transformation comes from her, like betraying the prince, um, I, well, throwing him against the wall, <laughs> attacking him, everything. So mm-hmm. yeah, you could work with more political implications with, with his people. There's like more going on there. There could be other people living in the solar system. There could be people on the moon and people are on Mars. But yeah, that was that would be something that I would want to develop more. Like on their on their quest. The narrative, they're not only getting to know each other, but there's some there's some greater evil that they that they both realize is going on that they both they both have to have to fight. But people have used things like large clouds of some terrible substance like chlorine gas mm. that the earth is going to go into Ooh. or people uh, worry about solar flares coming off the sun at times sometimes they can be much worse than other times and cause great radiation risk mm. for the earth or especially for unprotected planets like the moon i like that yeah so some or or, or like a friendly asteroid coming to hit the earth everyone loves a good asteroid coming or meteor or meteoroid or something um hmm. yeah i like that um that that whole idea i'm thinking so i'm just going to go back to the fairy tale for a couple of things so i wanted to check on so the fountain that the frog is in is supposed to be under a lime tree in some versions it's a um it's a linden tree and i just wanted to look up the symbolism okay limes have long been associated with fertility okay in France and Switzerland, they were a symbol of liberty, and the trees were planted to commemorate battles. Okay. Oh. It was believed that the truth would help unearth the truth. So it was associated with jurisprudence even after Christianization. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Okay. Luck, fertility. Hmm. I'm just wondering if there's something there. Um, Siegfried gains his invulnerability. This is in a medieval German work by bathing in the blood of a dragon. Ugh. A single linden leaf sticks to him, leaving a spot on, his be- uh, spot on his body untouched by the blood. Thus, he has a single point of vulnerability. Okay. The linden tree is a tree of lovers in German folklore. This all ma- makes a lot of sense um, in the in the context of the fairy tale. J.R. Tolkien composed the poem "Light as a Leaf on a Linden Tree" in 1925. Oh, good for him. Oh. It was a song sung by Aragorn about the tale of Baron and Luthien. So that's good. Interesting. Okay. So I thought those were different trees, but the linden tree, the lime tree, it looks like those are different names for at least. Different names for the same thing. It's known as the tree of life. Ooh. Oh. Well, that's important. So what if there's something going on here? We could use the old trick, but I mean stories are made of, of old tricks or old symbols of someone even who is trying to trying to defeat death on his own without without the intervention of God. And when you do that, terrible, terrible, terrible things always happen. Does the linden tree and the lime tree. So, oh, dad, I know. Okay, so someone, someone else. So we, we could have an enemy. Someone else is trying to get to Europa because there's a legend or a rumor that something there will will help them gain immortality. So they're on like a competing quest. Uh, I like it. What if So that would be the larger catastrophe you're talking yeah, about. You're sort of reaching the secret. And you could you could print, print like lots of foreshadowing so it doesn't come out of the blue, but someone is trying to piggyback and it could be a member of their crew. And to heighten the tension, it would need to be the same thing they're going after. So not just like unmined deposits of manganese, but maybe a very specific artifact that someone left behind on exploratory mission that they're like, oh, we need to go get that. 
for the war or whatever. So that would signify the golden ball. So it could, you know, it could be the rare metal, but it could also be like a specific type of technology or something. But someone else piggybacked and was either a stowaway, but more, more likely a member of their crew. So you get all this nice character building, but then weird things begin happening on the spaceship as things tend to. And people are like, oh, something is going on here. And it builds up to like like kind of a, a battle scene on Europa, which would be um, curious. One sec, I'm getting pinged. So that would... Um, that would kind of heighten, heighten the tension. So lots of character development between the prince and princess figures, whatever they would be called, um, and in defeating that enemy. And then even, even if the traitor on their ship had a bunch of allies who were waiting for them on Europa, because you, know, you could pull like a treasure hunt if they had the specific key or passcode okay. to get the thing. So they, they arrive and then there's like a battle scene and then they have have to get back to Earth very fairly quickly, I think. Um, and then, depending on how it goes, I know the the princess's like betrayal of the prince. I think if they've gotten to know each other, it's going to be a lot. Like the the more they know and like each other, the worse it will be when she she does whatever she does. So there might need to be like a misunderstanding woven in there, or like uh, okay. or even. Okay. It seems like a betrayal, and she wants everyone surrounding them to think it's a betrayal, but it's actually not. It's something to help him. Like, you know, she pretends to kick him off the ship into space, but really, you know, she there's a there's like a nice shuttle set set up to safely get him back to his people, um, to make her not as terrible. Again, that's that's the kind of trick you can pull where it's like people will know some kind of betrayal is coming, but they won't know exactly how it's going to work out, and that makes it more exciting to read. Okay. And then weave in his his narrative of, of faithful Henry, maybe you know if that if faithful Henry is like a friend or even even a brother who who needs help, like getting getting that part of it settled. But then kind of returning for some kind of reconciliation, a new like a new order, a new a new peace. But how does that hang together yeah. for you? Does that does that sound so? A lot of good elements there, I think. Uh... Yeah, the story has a lot of potential. So it need to be, I don't know, you need to make it interesting with like thicken the atmosphere. So thicken kind of the mythic part of it, just with like really, really good description. Like I I was listening to Out of the Silent Planet and Ransom's journey to Mars is just so beautifully written. Like he looks at the light and he's realizing that space is not some dark, black, cold existence. It's like full, It's it's the heavens and it's full of, uh, sunlight and um, and and wonder and gold. So thicken that aspect of it. Work on the hard science more. Um, make it a little bit. And that iteration would make it more treasure hunting and puzzle solving, which I like Fable Haven. I feel like Fable Haven is a good case study for how to do like a like a, a series of puzzles. Uh -huh, a lot. Right. Yeah. And everything, and even like really interesting kinds of puzzles. So make the part on Europa just really atmospheric and like part. Part Indiana Jones, part Interstellar, part, you know, and, and its own thing, obviously, but just um, that kind of atmosphere. So last thing, Dad. So in terms of characterization, what do you do? You, do you like a character who's already very competent and is demonstrating their competency? Like Marcus Riker, like already a good fighter and basically just has a bunch of new difficult projects to do. Or someone who's incompetent and has to kind of mature and figure out how to um, how to survive in a difficult environment i think i really thrill in the idea of maturation or perhaps even more in the idea of failure and a second chance I like that too. Those, those are the two things that i would that i like in a story mm. yeah i like those too so i wonder if her struggle again could be consistent with the fairy tale and that um, she finds it difficult to trust people. She, like any invitation to relationship, feels like a threat. Or, uh, maybe because something something bad happened to her in the past. So that could be her journey of like learning to trust and to to risk herself again in 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 getting to know someone. And then his struggle, because he is it, a Christ. The, the frog is a Christ figure in the fairy tale. So his struggle 
and if, if, if he's a human, he needs to be struggling with something. So hmm. maybe because a frog is, is definitely a creature of change. They change from tadpoles to frogs. They can go between land and water. So someone who's very flexible and used to surviving and adapting, but who lacks a home. And they're, they're so good at going between different things. They don't really know where they feel at home. Yeah, that would that would go along with the uh, people he belongs to, who mm-hmm. perhaps are human origins, and then some kind of estrangement, mm. some kind of difference that, in some ways, is looked down upon mm-hmm. by some, but adapts them very well to being wherever the separate place in the solar system is, mm-hmm. where they could survive. Mm-hmm. And also uh, be mistrusting of visitors and able to have some power of keeping the rest of Earth people away. So, and who knows, maybe that home is going away. Yeah, right. So they have to come back to Earth. So there's a, there's kind of a return of exiles and like a a coming home. I like it when in sci-fi when, like when people come back to Earth, because I, uh, I don't know what happens with space travel and everything, but. Like God made the earth for us. It feels right for travelers to come home to earth, have earth be the home to me. Right? Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I think the homecoming is a very powerful thing to have in a story. All right, that sounds good. So um, yeah, so there we go. So there's there's a way to do a sci-fi retelling of the Frog Prince, especially really trying to look at the mythic elements and see if there's, there's a, a scientific element that relates or corresponds. Right, so thanks, Doug. That was fun. Thank you, Alicia. All right. Well, thanks everyone else for joining. Yeah, join again next time to talk more about retelling fairy tales in the light of scripture. And if you like the show, please uh, rate and review.